Hello, and welcome to YouTube. If you're joining us on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. There you can become a producer of the show. You can submit the questions uh, that we will be answering. We have a fine panel today. Um, Saturday is our education day. And so we have a fine panelist of educators. If you have general edu education questions, then uh, feel free to uh, leave them for our first hour of questions, along with any uh, media and virtual production questions that you might have. Um, in our second hour, though, we will focus on a particular education topic, and that is the future of education. So we're looking forward to Dave Trotman as he takes us through that discussion. You can go ahead and put in your uh, um, questions um, for the second hour right now. But let's jump right into our questions. John, what do we have? Our first question is from Douglas Carmichael. How do you feed a show to a CDN? Do you just point your streaming software to the origin server? Go ahead, Dave. I think Sam is first there. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead, Samuel. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, pretty much you uh, pointed to the origin uh, server. Uh, this is an example from YouTube's interface, but it's quite similar on quite a few. If you're using a streaming provider that doesn't have a built in API, then you can put in the URL. Uh, most In most cases, you'll probably be using RTMP. And then you'll put in a, st a streaming key or like a long password. Uh, VMix and a lot of other platforms also have uh, uh, APIs integrated, so you can uh, uh, send the the show directly to to YouTube by just logging in with your YouTube credentials. Uh, but sometimes those uh, connections tend to break, so I like to use the keys. Thanks for the demo, Samuel. Good, Jeffrey. So it, it really depends on the CDN and there are CDNs out there that do not accept live stream because it's an ever, ever changing uh, landscape when you do do live stream. Think of it like having a pitcher of water and a little spigot on the bottom and you're filling the pitcher while you're opening that spigot. It needs, uh, the CDN needs to have some software in there that will understand that as it needs to fill up a certain point before it opens up that spout so you can uh, send out to somebody else. And then of course, each person that connects up to that becomes a new spigot on the bottom there. So that makes it even tougher for uh, for a CDN to, uh, to collect and then redistribute. Uh, so you'll see a lot of different software. YouTube is a CDN. Restream is a CDN, StreamYard is a CDN, they have interfaces so you can check out your stream, how it's going, and then, and then of course, the, how it's being distributed to other CDNs or to other uh, platforms. So uh, it really depends on what, you, what CDN you choose to uh, go from, because you can do the full manual setup like we used to do, uh, was it uh, not IceCast, but... Uh, they they had a, a streaming version of that software. Uh, we used to do that from our computer, and that was really tough to do video streams. Audio streams were a lot easier, of course. Uh, but uh, once you have that, once they have that implemented, then you'll be able to do that. But once again, it's all dependent on which CDN you choose. Next question. Jason Robertshaw in Sarasota, Florida asks, Lots of critters are showing up in the backyard this time of year. 
Has anyone used trail cams to observe wildlife? Recommendations on brands and setup. Dave, you watching any critters? Well, actually, around here, yeah, we watch a lot of critters. Uh, I don't have any in my yard because I can just look out my window and see coyotes in my backyard and that sort of thing. But um, a number of people are putting up uh, GoPros in their window and that sort of stuff, and and those are able to see what's going on. If you have time-lapse set, then you can see the odd thing appearing and disappearing. Uh, what I think you're looking for are cams that detect motion and detect activity in an area and then can capture pieces of video just when the activity is happening. Uh, one of the sites that has a lot of devices on it for offer is in the UK, actually, uh, kind of fun. Uh, it's called WEX Photo Video, and uh, it's um, offers trail cameras of two, diff two or three different types, the uh, Bushnell trail cams, and then they have one called Skypoint trail cams. And the Skypoints are built into what look like a rock. So you set up a rock by the side of a tree or near a trail, and it just looks like a rock sitting there, but it's embedded camera and storage and power, uh, which allows it to work for days on end because it's not always operating. It's only operating when uh, a, a creature goes by or a moose or something, and it'll record up to about 100 feet away. So it'll allow it to see into the forest or into the trail that you're you're observing and that you want to keep. Uh, so if it is for your backyard, might might not want one like a rock or anything, but the SkyPoint Micro LTE is a small radio-controlled one, so it allows it to transmit the picture back to something in your house where you can record it on your laptop or something. There's a number of these, and the ranges in price are from, say, 400 pounds. Uh, the cheapest one is about 110 pounds. Uh, this is US pound, uh, UK pounds, so you'll have to do your translation. There's a small one called PetCube. And that one intrigued me because it's almost a, a PTZ. It'll follow a pet. So if you have a pet in your house or something, you want to watch what its activities are. The camera won't be fixed. It'll actually track the pet and see where it's going in a room. So go to wexphotovideo.com um, uh, and uh, see what you see there. And uh, they do have free shipping for some of the more expensive cameras. And just see what you think there and, and give that a try. Um, I haven't, I've done time lapse forever, but I haven't done anything in the wild. So I can't say whether or not these batteries have to be serviced on a weekly basis or not, but it's worth uh, looking into. Next question. Our next question is from Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas. Rumor is that Watch OS 10 will be insanely great to replace the current OS that was a letdown. Will it be the WWDC surprise big hit? You know, it's been a while since Apple started referring to its products as insanely great. Go ahead, John. I don't think it'll be the surprise big hit. I think people, it'll have some improvements that people like. For me personally, my watch does everything I want, except for I don't like seeing a giant list of apps that automatically install themselves. And honestly, if I could just hide 80% of the apps and the complications would update themselves once a minute or once every 30 seconds, it would have everything I wanted it to be. Next question. Our next question is from Alex Lindsay in Nevada, California. As we get closer to WWDC, what is the panel hoping to see? Go ahead, John. I'm looking forward to seeing whatever Apple does with the headset. I think it will likely come out. I think 
I would be surprised if it's at $3,000, but I think it'll be more than uh, $1,000. It'll be interesting to see how they are positioning it, what they're marketing it as, how many different apps are available for it right away, uh, because it will tell us a lot about how finished Apple thinks the product is. I'm also looking forward to seeing macOS just have a list of stability improvements. I think if I had those two things, it would be a really great WWDC in my mind. And John Preto. Uh, a headset, of course. I think the headset's going to be 1500 bucks. A Apple Watch that does glucose monitoring would be fantastic. Uh, it, it, AI strategy, which advanced Siri. So the next generation of Siri with real AI built in, it would be great. And a new Mac Pro. Dave Trotman. Yeah, you stole my Mac Pro one there, John. Um, I'm hoping to see some advancements in their basic apps, the uh, Office apps and all the rest. And I'm kind of on Alex's side. I want to see 3D objects in my pages, my, power, my, my PowerPoint, my Keynote, and even in spreadsheets. So if they can put these 3D things and the virtual things into those products, it's going to propagate really well. But I just dream that stuff. I don't know if they'll do it. And Jeffrey, were you left with any unique wish? Yeah. So with the M2, I felt that it was that they didn't really cultivate it, uh, build it up like they did with the M1. You had the M1 Pro and you had the M1 and you had the M1 Super Pro and you had the M1 Crunchy and the Uncrunchy and all those other ones. Um, and uh, M2 was just, you did have the Pro, you didn't have the Max, I think was the one that was missing. Um, and it's interesting to see what they're going to do with the M3 because mostly the biggest problem is with uh, Apple devices is the GPU. Uh, and because, you know, a lot of games don't want to do, use the or work with the GPU that's, that's there. Uh, and that's why, you know, that's why we have NVIDIA trying to build a GPU uh, PCB board and, uh, and build up their own type of uh, environment for, uh, for gaming and for uh, things like uh, graphical, uh, like mid-journeys and, and things like that. So Apple having uh, being able to bring, come out with something that's just going to completely blow away, compete with and blow away NVIDIA is going to be a key in the next few years. Uh, and if not, then they're going to need to figure out a way to work with AMD and NVIDIA uh, to get some of these graphic uh, programs uh, to work a little bit better. So that's what I'm expecting on the M3 is to be a more graphically based uh, processor. But we'll see what happens on there. Other than that, the other two, yeah, the other ones I'd, I'd like to see too. And John, more to add? Yeah, WWDC is primarily a software show and i would be very surprised if we saw any hardware announcements other than the goggles just because it takes so long to explain i don't think apple's likely to release them as part of the keynote hardware will be released if there is a major change when the m1 came out that they did wwdc with the m1 because they needed to have uh people start programming for it and that's uh, and if you have enough programming that needs to change for that, you will see some hardware that comes out. Fantastic. Let's go to our next question. Next question is from Mitchell Hill in Wilmington, Delaware. What eventually killed Flash and is something else on the horizon to do the same? I think it was Colonel Mustard. Oh, go ahead, Jeffrey. Was Colonel Mustard in the, in the library with the uh, candlestick? No, it was actually Steve Jobs in the Apple with the, uh, with the iPhone. 
At least that's what the majority of people uh, will say. And the reality is Apple decided, hey, there's too many security flaws inside of Adobe Flash. People's data are at risk. So we're just not going to put it on the iPhone. And when that happened, you know, uh, things like YouTube, which had a Flash player, uh, all of these uh, these apps had to conform to what Apple was doing rather than what uh, what the what the regular computer was doing. So therefore, they started redeveloping HTML5 over Flash, and then they realized, hey, you know, it's you know, why why create two platforms when we can just be on one? And the one platform doesn't have a license to it, so yeah, why not? John Preda. Yeah, Jeffrey's Jeffrey's on the right pathway there. So Flash was interpretive and it was horribly inefficient. It would not run on the first generation phones uh, because it required too much CPU. And then they just integrated all of the features that you could do in Flash into HTML spec. And that's it. End of game. And of course, we know the history bore out that uh, Silverlight has taken that field. Oh, wait, no, it's disappeared in 2021. Uh, let's go to our next question. Our next question is from Alex Lindsay in Novato, California. Zoom has announced support for Apple shortcuts. How could we use shortcuts in our workflow? John? I myself will be using shortcuts to try to see if I can put together one shortcut called log into office hours that puts me in the right meeting, changes my name appropriately, and turns on all my lights. You think it's wise to put uh, less barriers between you and office hours? We'll see. Jeffrey? Can somebody explain how, how well, John did a small explanation. Can you explain more? Have you, have you played with it at all? Or No, I haven't played with it. I'm just thinking what kinds of things are likely able to be put into a version one of a shortcut. And it's usually simple features that um, are done repetitively. And so if you could select a Zoom meeting ID, have that open up and especially if you could log you into your, you know, a specific account, um, the other thing I was thinking was, I don't know if you'd be able to do something like change a name, but I know that every morning that I'm here, it's 645 or 630 in the morning and uh, I'm tired and groggy and it takes me longer than it should to get in. And uh, Jeffrey, more to add? Uh, I haven't really uh, looked at it, so um, I, I just wanted to get a little bit more clarification on what this announcement was. So. Yeah, I'm a little foggy on it too. Um, I'm curious as to how deep. Um, I would assume that the first implementation of the shortcuts is going to be that they won't um, dig too low, um, low below the surface as far as your functionality, and then perhaps you know those permissions might be enabled later. So maybe some superficial things at first, but uh, we'll have to see. I'm, I'm was thinking about like what. Um, you know, parity, uh, those shortcuts would be with already existing, um, you know, implementations that are on like Windows and other systems. And uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how Apple uh, addresses this one. Let's go to our next question. Our next question is from Douglas Carmichael. Has anyone ever used OPN Sense as a home router? I've been experimenting with it, and I like the easy interface combined with the stability of FreeBSD. I have a couple of practitioners here. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, oh, uh, OpenSense is it's one of a few different programs out there that you can get all, all well, this is free BSD based of a, a Linux based uh, that you can do a lot of different things like turn it into a VPN router, you can merge uh your your uh, internet connections together to it's not 
I don't want to call it bond because it's not really bonded because that's a cellular thing. And, uh, but it's a similar uh, process right there. Uh, you can also do what's called an SD-WAN. So basically, if, if Internet 1 goes down, the Internet two, uh, the second Internet can pick up and, and, and capture and then send out, uh, send out uh, information or bring in information. The uh, biggest thing is you, you put it on a regular computer. You have to have the hardware in there to run, and then that just uh, creates it like, a little, like any other type of router. Um, but when you do do that, you will have no Wi-Fi in most cases unless you actually uh, put the hardware in for Wi-Fi. And then you'll probably use a regular internet router like a Netgear or, or, a, uh, or a, a Linksys or something like that. Uh, and then you'll have to turn, most likely you'll, you'll be doing the DHCP through the OpenSense router. So you'll have to turn off the uh, internet router from your Netgear or your Linksys or, or whatnot so they don't conflict with each other. Got Samuel. Yeah, well, I haven't really used it myself, but I've been looking into this, uh, the OpenSense and the PFSense, which is uh, the OpenSense is a fork of the PFSense. Uh, and I'm interested in uh, experimenting in more with it, just like you are. I think there's uh, quite a few people in this group that are interested in networking. So perhaps it won't be out of the question to have some kind of lab or some kind of group after hours. I think that would be a fantastic idea. Let's see if someone steps up to, to head that up and we'll pursue that. In the meantime, uh, we uh, encourage everyone uh, to vote on the questions that we have. Uh, we do have some questions in our queue, and it is important as to which ones we spend time on and which ones we get to. Also, feel free to add your questions into the chat. We have our first hour that we have our general uh, questions, but also our general education questions. We do have our educators on the panel, and so all of our questions that don't deal with our second hour topic which will be the future of education, uh, you can put in for our first hour. Bees the uh, Mukana hashtag um, future of education if you'd like to contribute to our second hour. Let's go to our next question. Our next question comes from Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas. What are you looking forward to at Cinegear and what exhibitors would you vote for in the OH vote for field crew interviews? Go ahead, Dave. My particular interest is in lighting, and so I'm curious about the exhibitors that offer lighting products and innovations. I'm hoping that there's some new interesting and, and different approaches to lighting, and that uh, the LED panel has made a big, oops, excuse me, a big contribution to the small studio set and the uh, personal studio. But I'm really curious about how the big boys are going to change their, the way they do lighting. And certainly with cameras being a small, mobile, and um, ubiquitous, I guess, in, in video and film production, uh, we're going to find lighting that goes with a camera, I hope, and that there's some innovations in terms of that. Um, audio, of course, is always interesting at Cinegear because, of course, it's a, it's a huge challenge when you're shooting on location, that sort of stuff. So I'll be looking at that as well. And I'm curious as well with the lighting side of things. Would you say, Dave, it's more about the control of the lighting, or are we looking for better, better uh, sources or drones with lights on them? <laughs> drones with lights on them would be interesting, but you can only keep them up for 30 minutes at a time. Um, 
I, I guess for me, I guess the lighting is to, to try and innovate in, in how you can get bright things from small sources and still make it look like it's a large source. Uh, then having a better battery for some of the uh, point source stuff that's, uh, say, inside cars and, and moving environments. Um, but I guess in the sense that if, if some of our lighting has fans in it and that sort of stuff now, and if they find a way to eliminate that, then we can have more of those high-power lights closer to microphones without interfering. Um, I haven't been in this uh, big studios for a very long time, so I don't know what innovations have happened in my local area, but I'm always curious where where it's pointing. And with cameras becoming more and more sensitive and able to work in natural and normal light, uh, what sort of augmentation of the lighting is going to happen? And that comes to your question of whether it's control or not. So having dynamic lighting, which would produce special effects, uh, that might be interesting. And video walls, of course, providing lighting in those um, uh, circular environments, the the sort of um, what they did for um, um, Disney's show, um, The Mandalorian, uh, they found that there was a little more control over light from the background and the sources that they were projecting behind the actors. So that's a side of things that I think video walls are going to have as an advantage is that they can provide a sort of backlighting and, and control of light in a room just by having video walls all around a person. Yeah, I agree. The, the venue at um, Cinegear, as opposed to NAB, is that they're concerned about the large, the big time productions. And so while at NAB, we're looking for, you know, um, some of your more accessible gear, I am interested in seeing, you know, what cutting edge uh, is going to be uh, released for the, the large standard. Now, Dave mentioned, a little bit about the LED walls. And of course, having that, um, it actually does kind of help with the lighting when that natural reflections can happen off of a real source as opposed to composited sources. But uh, yeah, it should be interesting to see what advancements uh, are being made. It seems that there are more um, uh, outlets for um, movies and film nowadays with the streaming wars going on. So seeing what um, makes things more accessible to create quicker workflows and content, I think would be uh, fantastic to check out. Go ahead, Dave. Well, this goes along with, the, we've gotten into where we have robot cameras on arms that can fly around the room and, and do some very accurate and reproduce movement. But the lighting can do that as well. And so if lighting has robot controls as well, we can do some very interesting dynamics in terms of illusions and that sort of stuff. And maybe even on drones. Let's go to our next question. You can hope there, Jobs. Our next question is from Mitchell Hill in Wilmington, Delaware. What's on your top two list of things that you want to buy for your studio, and why do you need it? All right. Well, everyone needs something in their studio, so let's start with Dave. That's true. There are only two things, so you pick the right number. Uh, another monitor is absolutely necessary for what I do, and I've been trying to struggle with a iPad is a separate monitor, but it's not serving as much as I thought it would. Uh, secondly, I'm, I'm really going to be getting a, um, a 360 link. So. Go ahead, John. For me, I would look forward to upgrading to a, um, a MixPre 3 so I can have the noise assist, when, especially when I have my work PC. My laptop runs its fan all the time. And so it's just really noisy. The second thing I would get myself is a, a larger monitor or maybe a decimator so I could have a larger monitor for my teleprompter. 
and John Preto. Mitch, I'm just waiting for my U87 there in your studio, and I OC OC white arm to hold it up, buddy. Fantastic inside, inside joke, <laughs> Jeffrey. So I've been uh, uh, well. Yesterday, you guys saw my studio in detail uh, during the ten thousand dollar studio episode, which you can watch over on Office Hours if you didn't see that. Uh, but uh, one thing that I've been thinking about doing is actually extending. I talk about how I have the the faux brick wall behind me. Um, I've been thinking about actually putting in a corner. So drywall, uh, possible uh, faux window, which is going to be a computer monitor that's set up to look like a window. Um, and uh, so I can be able to do a little bit more angle, have that corner in the background for a little bit more depth uh, in the video to kind of, you know, change up how the studio looks and possibly even bring in another camera to that direction. And then, of course, the other thing I'm working on is uh, setting up for NDI ISO recording. So I can, uh, instead of for live streams, uh, if I'm not doing a live stream, I can actually record each individual uh, camera and then do post-production on it. Have you had any um, success uh, with using the monitor as a faux window in the past? I've seen a lot of implementations of it. It looks good. It doesn't seem like you would need anything, you know, if you didn't want it to be like a bright sunshine, like a high. Yeah, I've been uh, doing a lot of, lot of watching and reading on different ways to bring a monitor into your show uh, directly and indirectly. Uh, there was a really great video that came out a couple weeks ago on how they did it. They took a couple, I think it was 50-inch uh, monitors, and they turned them 90 degrees. And then they put them on the side because they were bringing in clients uh, to do one-on-one uh, -on -one interviews. And they wanted to make it look like this was an office-style uh, situation. So they did that, and then they had to redo some of the lighting. So the lighting, the reflections because they had a windowsill and they had plants on the windowsill, for example, and they needed to do, set it up so the reflections would work properly uh, with the monitor. So uh, I don't know if I'm going to go that far on it, but it would just be nice, like I said, if I did that second camera, you're going to see a big concrete wall and a couple other things. Like I said, I showed it yesterday, and I want to be basically close that in to make it look like it's, un well, it is another wall, but another uh, finished wall. Uh, so you guys can see, you know, different angles, different ideas. So there was a cool video on DIY perks. He made columnated light look like sunlight uh, come in. Um, I think that setup was a little bit onerous and uh, probably was a maintenance nightmare, but it looked really cool. Go ahead, Samuel. Yeah, for me, then I would say some aerial adapters for routing audio and a HDMI matrix for routing video. How many channels, Samuel? Well, uh, the the HDMI. Uh, I might get an eight eight channel uh, HDMI matrix sometime in the future. That should do it. Probably wouldn't want for any more than that, but we'll see. Let's go to our next question. Alex Lindsay is back from Novato, California. ChatGPT is great, but does the panel have any experience with using a known group of texts, let's say 50 to 60 volumes, and making them more accessible with an LLM? John Preto. So this question is a little bit complex because in order to, and we're spoiled now because we've all used ChatGPT, GPT-3 or 
three, five, or four, which has a large corpus of data to start on. And that's the reason why it's so effective is because they've got huge amount of parameters, 175 billion parameters. And so you you have to start with the corpus large enough in order to make the LLM effective. So you use a foundational model, one of the open source foundation models. Uh, stability stability just came out with Stability LM, which is a foundational model. And or the, the Facebook foundational model is actually pretty good, too. Problem is the, the licensing issue on each one of these different open or open source LMs that are available out there. And so you start with one of the foundational LLM models, and then you would you would fine tune or train uh, further train those models with your corpus of data on top of that. So there's a ton of new tools coming out every week right now for this for this specific reason. NVIDIA has got a bunch of stuff coming out in the marketplace. So uh, that's that's the process of how that works. And John, is that something that is accessible to an end user to go ahead and farm their own LLM? Uh, developer? I mean, you're you're basically at, you're basically writing the code and, and pre-training these models, and so you're doing um, you're you're adding you're fine-tuning to the existing LLM. So mostly developers are integrating this kind of work right now. Understood, John Snyder. Yeah, and I'm seeing, excuse me, a lot of companies start advertising the ability to, I don't know how, how thorough they are, to point one of these models at an existing data set you have. And the big ones that I see advertised are internal knowledge bases. So if you have like an Office 365 subscription as your organization, it could crawl all of your SharePoint instances with all the documents inside of it and give a, be a chat bot for everyone in the organization to quickly find policies, procedures, standards, that sort of thing. The other really big one worsening in my industry is in call centers. Um, call centers record and transcribe most of their calls. Uh, any modern call center does that. And so, for example, we have 10 million calls worth of transcribed calls that are just waiting for uh, something to do with that data. Right now, we can do some speech analytics on it, uh, but we're looking at some products that will ingest those and be able to, again, offer an agent assistance tool or a self-service tool for our customers. Yeah, um, I I think, John, you bring up a uh, an interesting use case is where um, companies uh, wouldn't want their data to be sourced, yet they probably want the inference from the large law, uh, language models. It kind of makes me wonder whether um, different flavors uh, based on their data sets might be offered uh, to individuals based on you know um, what things they specialize in or even preference with different individuals. Let's go to our next question. Our next question is from Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas. Do you have anything to add to this Cinegear question list? And he posts the link. Yep, unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to um, look at that uh, link all that uh, closely, but uh, maybe we can take a look at it at another time. Let's go to our next question. Our next question is from Mitchell Hill in Wilmington, Delaware. Do you still hard code a website or use a favorite program like WordPress? Sam, you want to kick us off? Well, it really depends. Uh, if you just have like a simple uh, website, then a static uh, one works very well just for like some uh, information you don't change all the time. Uh, but if you have like a dynamic uh, site that you want to update a lot, uh, then uh, uh, there's a lot of advantages with going for something like WordPress. And there's also a lot more plugins and stuff you can install with the WordPress compared to the static one. John. 
This is funny you bring this question up because Dave and I were just talking about this this morning. Uh, been coding since 1988, and so for for just like Samuel said, if you have a a small one pager, then it's fine for HTML. Uh, I I do most of my sites small to medium in in WordPress. Unless you're a big organization, you're not going to hand code this stuff because your customers are going to see something on another website, some sort of special gallery or integration in with their social media which are all plugins built into WordPress. So having that ecosystem built around WordPress is, is just super, super valuable. And uh, I, I ran Mike Tyson's website on WordPress. Fifth Dimension runs on WordPress. And I use WPX as my host of the world's fastest WordPress hosting site. Super good, great prices. Jeffrey. There are some websites that do the hard coding in it. Well, technically hard coding. They know their, uh, they know how to do their database uh, work. So what they'll do is they'll end up creating HTML pages uh, on a daily or weekly basis once they've published something because it, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it is the fastest way to uh, to push out. If you don't have any extra code or you don't have a backend that's trying to figure out where what it's supposed to put into the page so uh so there are some some groups that do that and then of course you still have things like drupal that are still out there and people uh, coding in that as well let's go to our next question our next question is from paul walhus in austin texas synology and live view are some some of the live streams from cinegear itself will you watch these and I have to say, whenever it comes to um, streaming services, I think some um, some content is really uh, given uh, to the medium of live streaming, and that's particularly my my um, largest interest is that which you actually can uh, interact with it. So if the vendors, um, if they've enabled you to get real time access to having their entire staff there. And they're set up to answer your questions. I would be interested in tuning in. Um, the other reason for uh, tuning into a live stream uh, for corporate things would be um, news, so news events. So, um, but the news would have to be so uh, pertinent that getting it in the moment actually makes a difference. I mean, the news aspect of these things, I don't think, really lends a lot to it um here you got an uh you have a press release but if they don't if it's news without the interaction it's not so not so compelling uh for me i'll wait until the, typically they will you know they'll pre-can all of their release notes and it's something you can read and i'd rather have um a discussion about it in, in a forum like this where we can actually um, have the minds and expertise to ask the good questions about it um, if there's no source available. The other source is sports for obvious reasons, <laughs> sort of that live news that you need. Um, but other than that, I don't really feel the need to tune in to be a part of it, particularly if I can't uh, 2x uh, a dry presentation. Uh, what do you think, Dave? I I'm taking this question to mean probably that people like LiveView or Cinegear are going to do a demo and that they'll be live streaming from the floor or from a special place they've set up so that they can demonstrate the reliability, capability, quality, all the rest. And 
I find that interesting in that, you know, scheduling a live thing and then promoting it and having people tune it in who might use the product uh, is a good idea because then you can have it in a very complex environment in which it's performing very well. But I guess for me, the only ones I'm going to tune into are the uh, Office Hours live feeds that are coming up from Cinegear, and we're using LiveView for that. So it'll be interesting to see how we do it. And we have the question and answer layer that Josh is talking about that makes the whole experience a little more compelling. Yes. Let's go to our next question. Our next question comes from Craig McFarlane in Boston, Massachusetts. Particular to AI, news often needs interpretation for what it means. What is your go-to source for timely and reliable AI news? John? You know, there's I, I haven't seen one good definitive AI site that's out there. What I use is TweetDeck, and then I and then I have two channels set up, one for for channel AI and one for channel artificial intelligence. And that's how I find out most of what's going on. But those need to be vetted, those posts that come out of Twitter. And then Hugging Face is probably the best AI community out there. There's a bunch of forums and great information on huggingface.co. Yeah, I think um, you're you're um, off the ground running if you um, have a news source of someone as a practitioner in the field as opposed to someone that's promoting it. Um, as well as, um, yeah, it's, it's not really, uh, trying to offer you uh, product support and is close to it that has more practical, uh, you know, applications. Let's go to our next question. Our next question is from me based on our pre-show conversation. What's the best way to get information to stick from educational YouTube videos? Well, John, you get to open it up then. Yeah, and, and all of us have experienced this at some point where you're trying to learn something and maybe you cram for a test or something like that. You take the test and you realize two days later, you can't remember anything. Um, and that's been something we've known about for over 100 years. The The concept we used to describe is called the Ebbinghaus forgetting curve, and you can see a graphic of it here. And basically, most of us try to learn by just jamming information to our brains like this red line here. When you do that without any sort of reinforcement, you end up forgetting 95% of information within two weeks. Uh, within one day, you've forgotten about 50% of what you learned. So there's really only a few principles that will allow you to move information from short-term memory into long-term memory. And the two most effective are one called retrieval practice and one called spaced repetition. When you take the same information and you teach it the exact same way using the same words, but instead of trying to force it into one or two hours, you spread it out over several weeks in bite-sized chunks, just doing that alone can help you retain about 50% of information after two weeks of the learning event. If you do something more and you try to retrieve it from your brain, so you have activities like using flashcards or quizzing yourself or just taking a piece of paper and writing down everything you know about a topic, that reactivates the, the pathways in your brain, which allows you to retain almost 80% of information after two weeks. So those are really the most effective ways to retain information if you're trying to learn it. Thanks for that uh, graph. Good, Dr. Clark. That's very good, John. And um, another trick, if you will, from the point of view of the, the maker of the... Uh, instructional video is to try to link the information that you're trying to communicate to something that the uh, student, the learner already knows and has overlearned. 
And a, a lovely way to do this is uh, to associate the uh, principle or the, the skill with uh, a tune or a song that most people know. Um, for example, during um, the early days of pandemic, when um, we were being urged to wash our hands in a particular way um, for longer than we usually would wash our hands, um, I came up with the idea for school children. We have a friend who's a school nurse, and she was trying to figure out how to get uh, the children, the young children, to wash their hands for the recommended two minutes. And uh, I came up with the idea of associating it with the tune of uh, This Little Light of Mine, a little Sunday school song, except uh, change the wording to These Two Hands of Mine. And, and the task was to uh, sing that song twice through, and that would um, get the kids to have washed their, kept their hands in the soap and water for two minutes. Um, and the other, the other uh, very dramatic one has to do with uh, the pace of uh, chest compression when administering CPR. Um, and the uh, brilliant idea that somebody came up with is that you uh, do the compressions to the beat of and the tune of uh, Staying Alive, the old disco song. So it's <laughs> it was a great choice because it's literally part of Staying Alive is administering this first aid, but it's at a, a fast enough pace that it um, is the, the pace most likely to uh, reactivate the heartbeat. So if you can link thing, the basic principle is link what you're trying to teach to something that the learner already knows. And then you've have the burden of uh, retention and remembering. Jeffrey. I'm just a bill, a lonely old bill at, Stuff like that, as as Doctor Clark says, it's 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 ear candy, earworms that can get you to uh, go from there. You had the old Kevin Trudeau system, which talked about creating filing cabinets to put things into, uh, but that's on the learned uh, on the on the person to learn that type of uh, process. There, the bigger thing that I've learned from uh, different uh, different groups is that. People, of course, learn differently. And one thing that I've I've been told is that if if your audience is male versus your audience being female, how they learn. Like for instance, if I was to give directions to a a male, uh, I would do turn left at the Dairy Queen, then go down and then turn right at the uh, at the at the big office building, but. It, and it's been proven that if you if you then say it to a female, you say go down three point five meters and then take the left, go down uh, six meter uh, six uh, uh, miles and then take the right type. Uh, so it's really dependent on who you're educating, and how they will have that stick into their brain. Go ahead, John. 
Yeah, and the principles Dr. Clark was talking about, and Jeffrey, when you said put it into little boxes in your mind, um, if you want to research more on that, that's called using scaffolding or cognitive schemas to structure the learning. Yeah, um, I was watching a, um, uh, a YouTuber, I don't remember her name, but she went through nursing school and she found that she retained the um, information from the presentations she'd had from her professors that she disliked the most. And her, her takeaway from that was that because she was so adversarial in her listening, that the points stuck. She was like real-time active in the class and real-time correcting the facts. And as a result of that interaction, um, it generated uh, retention. She actually did better in the with the professors that she cared for the least. Um, so having uh, some way to interact with the information such that it doesn't just flow over top of you is helpful. Um, however, you can do that, whether it's you know quizzing yourself or um, pulling in more questions or you know having some interaction with the information as opposed to it like yeah that checks out. Like for, because the what what I found was interesting with her observation is the ones that she didn't have any issue with didn't necessarily provide any retention with it because she was like, yep, that's right. That's right. Uh, Dr. Clark. Uh, this is the pop quiz. I'd like to see a raising of hands of the panelists who remember the song that you're supposed to have going through your head when you're administering CPR. Anyone? Anyone? Okay, well, that, we got 50% self-declared remembering. And the answer is? Staying alive. He just told us, staying alive. Uh, CPR, I thought it was, okay. I thought it was another, I thought it was washing your hands was staying alive. I thought, uh, okay, my bad. It was also a great scene in the office using that exact story. <laughs> well, I thought that was appropriate because, you know, you're trying to fight infection, so you're staying alive. That's right. But that makes sense, too. Let's go to our next question. Our next question is from Jason Robert Shaw in Sarasota, Florida. Recommendations for desktop docking stations? Something where folks can just plop down and start zooming. Logitech just announced this beast and puts a link. I saw that, and I don't know what to make of that. Jeffrey, help us out. Yeah, so what that is, is not as much of a docking station for you to set down, plug in, and do a uh, and and do your work it's more it's, it's set more uh, or at least the way i see it it's set more for a situation where if you need to schedule something or or have a one it, it basically replaces a receptionist on a receptionist on uh, on call uh so but yeah you can also use it for regular work docking stations i'm always a big fan of powered docking stations Anything that uh, that has its self-powered on it, uh, OWC being a great docking station. Uh, I also have uh, pluggable, which I use for some of my docking stations. Keep in mind when you have a docking when a company puts out a docking station, they're adding extra circuitry into your in your configuration and that could be a multitude of things that could be a multitude of different brands just like when when you buy a uh, when you buy a pc you buy like the gigabyte brand or you buy the msi brand and then they contract out the video card to somebody they contract out the audio to somebody same things happening in here so depending on what 
is inside can be a big factor on how your doc ends up working. In fact, I've been thinking about creating, doing some YouTube videos where I rip apart some of these docking stations to so, show you the circuitry inside to see if it's worth it uh, to actually buy. And that's why I always like powered uh, docking stations because they're, they work, they, they're self-powering to try to work as a separate unit as opposed to a passive docking station, uh, which ultimately I've seen these passive docking stations stop working because Apple or, or Windows has done an update and they just don't uh, allow for that type of uh, command pass-through anymore. Go ahead, Dave. My experience with docking stations goes back to the mid-90s when Apple put out a PowerBook Duo, which came with a great big giant desktop frame. You plugged all your monitors and communications and everything in the back, your keyboard and the rest. And then at some point, you push a button on the side of this box and out comes your laptop. And, and it looks like this one behind me. Uh, it was a nice portable laptop. It had a pretty good battery in it, and it worked really well for me. But when I had the dock, I always had difficulty getting things to be recognized by the dock. That is, I had a monitor, but it wouldn't light up. I'd have to power it up again in order to get it to communicate with the dock. That was the early days. Things have improved greatly. And as Jeffrey points out, I think what we're showing in the link with Logitech is not so much a dock as a sort of terminal station for managing all of your connections and your scheduling of meetings and that sort of stuff. Uh, hubs, I think, are the way to go. And I just got an anchor hub. It's a Thunderbolt hub. And as I go with Jeffrey, powered hubs are the way to go because then you don't have to worry uh, too much about too many things drawing through your laptop and and that sort of stuff and communicating better because it's powered. So I have my monitors, my uh, iPad, I have all my connections and, and uh, Ethernet and everything going through a hub and the connection to my laptop is one USB. So I can unplug the laptop, walk away with it, do things with it, come back, plug it in. I don't have to worry about rewiring my desk. It also cleaned up my desk quite a bit by taking everything to one spot and having it hang off the back. I think that's a better solution because then you have chances to change things. The back of this Logitech shows where you can take off the cover and put things in and have all those connections, and that's a great way. So for me, that's a hub with a fixed screen. That Logitech flat screen is a, is a permanent thing. It doesn't come off. So you can't sort of put your laptop on there, and then suddenly that screen is not used. Your laptop takes over. It's a bit different for the Logitech one. But I'm, I'm with you on having a, a, a hub uh, handle many of the things that you would have to wire in and rearrange every time you take your laptop out of, off your desk. Yeah, that's the impression I got was that what's old is new again. Now we have another terminal uh, for it. And this, I noticed the screen specs on is only 300 nit brightness. So um, better make sure that uh, you don't have a bright environment. Let's go to our next question. Our next question is from Douglas Carmichael. Rumors are building about a 15-inch MacBook Air at WWDC. Do you think we'll see a 15-inch MacBook Pro as well? Why or why not? Go ahead, John. Yeah, like I said before, I don't think we're going to have very much hardware at all. I don't think we'll see a MacBook Air at WWDC. Maybe as a press release, uh, the days or weeks leading up to it or shortly after that. But I don't think they'll. Apple will spend much time during a two-hour keynote devoted to hardware that's just hey, here's a bigger screen to something we already have. 
I think it's more likely we'll see a MacBook Pro because that's a developer conference and pros are developer machines. Jeffrey, would you like to confirm or contradict? Yeah, in that case, I, I totally agree with John. If there's no reason to make to program for it, then they're not going to talk about it. As for a 15-inch uh, MacBook Pro, they already had a 15-inch MacBook Pro, and everybody wanted a little bit larger, so they made a 16-inch MacBook Pro. I have the 15-inch MacBook Pro sitting right here, and another one sitting right behind me. So, it's uh, I don't I don't think it's going to happen. I'm wondering why they're going to do a MacBook Air. I still think that eventually the iPad and the MacBook Air are going to somehow merge together and they're going to end up one, one thing. But it's just way too many SKUs. And I don't think that Apple will want to get uh, into that game of juggling what, uh, you know, having a 14-inch, uh, or I'm sorry, 13-inch, a 15-inch, and a 16-inch MacBook Pro. Next question. Our next question is from Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas. Data is at the heart of every industry's transformation, and this is where Synology comes in. What role do they play in the world of Hollywood filmmaking? Well, I'm not practiced enough to know what brands uh, make it onto the Hollywood set, but perhaps that's something we can ask for our Cinegear crew. Uh, Dave, would you like to chime in? I'm not particularly familiar with Synology, but in terms of the data issue, yeah, the industry's transformation is handling the data. Hollywood is producing a great deal of data, and even in the distribution area, data is being gathered about who watches what. I think maybe you're on the right track, but I don't know that Synology has anything special uh, in their basket. Let's go to our next question. Our next question is from John Fultz in Sillings Grove, Pennsylvania. Follow-up to code versus WordPress. What are the base skills folks should have for this? HTML, CSS, JavaScript? Care to help us out, Samuel? Well, it really depends what you're trying to do. Uh, so I would say uh, if you're doing a static website, then if you have a little bit of uh, knowledge with uh, HTML and CSS, then you can get pretty far. Uh, but if you're trying to do something more like ad advanced, like build a web app or something, you should get into JavaScript. But I I do a few websites, and I don't have much knowledge of uh, JavaScript or PHP, but I Google it when I need an answer. And John Preto. So coding these days is much like the medical industry, and, and so we call it a layer stack, right? And so you've got, you've got people that do front-end coding, you have people that do back-end coding, that's the that's the hierarchy and everything in between. You got tons of specialists out there. So there's a lot to learn and people specialize in, in that stratified layer of of services. And there's a ton of learn. And anybody that tells you they're a full stack developer, they're full of clean show. So uh you have to choose kind of your you have to choose your weapons closely. Even if you do just WordPress, you should know basic HTML and, and CSS because you're going to pull your hair out of your head if you don't, because things aren't going to align properly. So it, it's, this is a long journey ahead, my friend. Let's go to our next question. Our next question is from Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. Yesterday, we had up to $10,000 studios. Is it practical for educators to have a system at that price point? We'll talk to our educator, Dr. Clark. The answer is no. Thank you, Dr. Clark. 
John, would you like to uh, you weigh You saw my answer. Um, I think a sweet <laughs> spot for a current educator, if they are doing distance learning, is probably around the $2,000 price range. You can get an 80% solution and have a really nice setup. Um, I think the future of education maybe is schools investing in studios for teachers to use to present to large groups of students um, where the school's paying for it, building it, and has a separate location for that rather than uh, just assuming any educator can afford something like a, a high-end studio. I have nothing to add. Next question. Next question is from Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas. Onset Headsets is into introing a surveillance headset at Cinegear. What does Hollywood use these for? Never heard of this. Dave, any clue? Well, actually, a surveillance headset is those ones you see the Secret Service using where they can talk into their arm and it's a hidden little uh, earpiece. Those are the surveillance headsets. So using those on set, absolutely, because they're uh, discrete things. They allow you to monitor whether your environment and hear at the same time, and it allows you instant communication with the rest of your team. Uh, it's also, you know, can be put into a system where it channels who you talk to and who can talk to who without interrupting other people and having a big giant party line. So yeah, surveillance headsets, they've been around a long time. Uh, they're just a term. But if Onset is offering those kind of headsets now on their list, that'll be interesting. It's in a gear to see how Hollywood responds. Fantastic. And we thank you uh, for all of your um, questions. We had a, a lively first hour uh, with all of your uh, general education and uh, general questions in, in general about uh, general things. Um, we're going to be moving into our second hour that has a specific topic, not general at all, uh, about an education topic about the future. Before we do, we'd like to let you know that uh, our next week of programming has been released. So if you look in the daily email, you'll find that we have a, a fantastic uh, lineup for our graphics day. You can expect USDZ um, and uh, in motion and final cut applications, digital audio basics. Um, our audio pro Jeff Francis will be visiting us and, and giving us that discussion, as well as LumaFusion Multicam Studio, a new release. We'll have um, their some of their co-founders on to discuss that. So if you'd like to look at some more mobile, mobile workflows, be sure not to miss that. And uh, for Friday, for those of you that appreciate the uh, workflow of office hours, we're engaging our remote production. Um, sorry our remote production update. Um, speaking about uh, the latest and greatest uh, production workflows, so we have some of our, our office hours practitioners that will be there to answer your questions about what we're doing in the latest and greatest in production. And AI lesson plan uh, is next week in education. So with that, uh, we'll hand things off. Um, what do we have? Thanks, Josh. The future of education is our subject today on uh, Education Hour on Saturdays. Uh, today we'll have a conversation about the, that future and what we imagine it might be. Uh, it doesn't matter how far into the future you want to talk. It could be next month. It could be next year. It could be next pandemic. We welcome any suggestions from our viewers on what the future of education might be. And we'll try and answer even questions about what that future might bring and speculate with along with you about our reaction to some of those suggestions. Uh, a list might include uh, whether 
critical thinking skills will outweigh the core subjects in classrooms. Uh, maybe some trends that you see coming that we would like to delve into a little more deeply and either in the classroom or at home. Uh, emerging technology, which helps teachers and learners and trainers to be more effective. Uh, relying on just-in-time learning to accomplish a task or solve an immediate problem. We had a little discussion about that in the first hour regarding YouTube uh, comprehension and app, uh, retention. Uh, ways to counter the effects of advertising and media messages and the notion of what is a fact or what is true. Uh, how to build communities of learning in your own circle of acquaintances. And uh, perhaps making studio spaces in schools where special kinds of presentations like shop class uh, can be done for online learning and have more than one camera and, and a whole bunch in a configuration that allows an instructor or a teacher to be able to convey more than just the face-to-face -face learning. So uh, to begin with that, we'll have a little chat amongst our panelists uh, about what they think the future of education is and maybe debate a subject or two. And then uh, we'll take it to the questions that uh, are queuing up already. And if you have some questions, you can put them in now. And if our little conversation here with the panel triggers something in your mind, be sure to put it in the questions. Be sure to vote on other people's questions to encourage the direction we go. So we'll start with Chris Clark. Well, good morning. Um, I think it was Yogi Berra who's credited with the aphorism that uh, prediction is very difficult, especially if it's about the future. And I think that's that's the way we've set our program up this morning. Um, one principle that I would uh, introduce into the conversation is the idea that um, change in education, broadly speaking, is going to be slower than we imagine or slower than some of us would hope or slower than some of us fear. So that it's a huge system. Education is a public education is primarily what I'm thinking of is a, a huge enterprise. And it has a long tail, a long history, because uh, all of the previous living generations uh, of people in a in a culture or a country have had different but uh, unforgettable um, years of experience with their education journey. And so that uh, the, those remembered experiences, some of which were great and some of which are forgotten and some of which were terrible, um, frames what they think of when they hear the word education and what they think should have changed or might be changing. So so we have this weight of familiarity and weight of history that is very widely distributed, but but is different for each subculture and each individual, really. So in a system like in a situation like that, it's kind of like an ecosystem in uh, wildlife biology that there are many, many contributors to um, the way education looks and feels, uh, I mean, millions and billions. And, and in a situation like that, um, change comes very slowly and it, it almost takes a generational uh, timeline 
to begin to see changes. Now, we did see dramatic uh, and quick change during the, the period when uh, schools were closed uh, due to the pandemic. Um, and now in the, in the rearview mirror, at least with regard to schools being reopened again, um, there have been some changes in the ways schooling looks and feels in some places. And there's been a lot of uh, pressure and aspiration to get things back the way they were, you know, back to the old normal, not a new normal. And some people have opted out of the old way of doing things. And some people have um, had their eyes opened about possibilities that they didn't think existed before we had to pivot quickly to online uh, teaching and learning or connection. Uh, but in general, it's a, it's a system with a lot of inertia. And so it changes more on a glacial pace than on a move, move fast and break things pace as some of the uh, startup gurus advocate. So I'll, I'll leave it there. Thanks for that. And I, can, I really agree with you, Chris, that the pace of change will be slow. Glacial, maybe prehistoric. Uh, it's, it's the, um, the impetus to change, I believe, will come from the home, from the family, or from the demands on a school, from our social changes, that when things in the society shift, the school catches up. And our shift was sudden in the pandemic, and the wish to go back is a comfort value. It's kind of like we, we want it to go back to that way. But we had a shift before the pandemic where more of the families had both parents going to work or single parents, and that the school was taking on more other responsibilities, not just the basics of teaching. And that was exacerbated with online because we were both handling what a student needs to learn something and what a student needs to be engaged. And they were reinforced by the home in some cases and not reinforced by some homes. So we didn't have full success there. And I think that's partly why people are longing to get back to it in the classroom, because then they can worry about work and not worry about their children, or they can have a, a sense that the kid is getting more socialized than he was sitting in front of his computer for most of the day. Um, but I'm with you on the social change uh, being very slow and that the school being slow catching up. Uh, John? Yeah, and I think the crisis of the pandemic and how quickly we change, and, and most people view that as unsuccessful, what we try to do with students and home and distance education. I wonder if that'll even delay us further and make it slow down future progress because people are gun shy. I think when we're thinking about the future of education broadly, we have to consider that one, education is a really, really big word. And um, it's a part of our society, especially in uh, Western society, US society in particular. It's so embedded in different systems and structures that like Chris was saying, there's a ton of inertia that the roots are interwoven into all sorts of other systems and structures that you can't just rip it out whole cloth unless some crisis comes up like a pandemic or you have a mass exit of teachers. 
And I think one thing that could spur a need for education to change is if schools continue to struggle with recruiting the way they currently are, um, they will, there will be a need because we won't have enough instructors. I think some key themes that we can see that started in the corporate world and then have filtered their way down into higher education and may eventually move into uh, primary and secondary education are the unbundling of education services. And, and like Chris was saying, schools have become so much more than education institutions, good, bad, or indifferent, they've become more. And um, generally speaking, what you see in trends in industry is a move from bundling to unbundling, back to bundling, back to unbundling. School's been bundled up. It's childcare, it's education, it's social learning, it's uh, coaching, it's all sorts of different things all wrapped up. But what we see in the corporate world and higher education is some of those systems are starting to unbundle and the roles are starting to unbundle. So instead of being a trainer, we have instructional designers who partner with knowledge management system engineers who partner with uh, instructors who partner with tutors who partner. And so the those roles are starting to divvy out, especially in the corporate world. And, and now I see it a lot in college or college level teaching. And I expect if we need to scale up, if we need to be able to serve the same number of students with fewer people, that's going to be one of the only ways we can do that is we'll have smaller groups of people who are really specialized so that we can mass educate. And then we try to um, enable systems for those students who need it to have that one-on-one -on -one connections in a different way than maybe we're used to. I'm really with you on the idea that education is a big, giant word because we talk about the economy and people seem to see and understand the scope of economy. But we don't talk about education in that huge scope, social influence scale, and that it's one of the pillars that makes what our society is work. Other cultures have different approaches to education or subject matter for education, and it's a pillar of their culture, how their young people are being prepared to be in that society. And I think you're you're right on the money that this is such a big subject, you can't really predict how the future is going to go on a micro level. Uh, Chris, carry on. Yes, I had another thought, which is um, one of the big pillars of education is what's called the curriculum. That is what is taught or in a classic uh, text from a hundred years ago, the question was posed, what knowledge is of most worth? So what, what do our students need at various uh, age and developmental levels? And I think uh, the curriculum is being changed, uh, not in a, in a kind of a planful way, but uh, in a way that recognizes that um, school-aged children today know things from other sources than schooling that uh, used to be only available through uh, direct instruction in school. So kids, quote unquote, already know that. Uh, so we need to adjust the, the curriculum to uh, take what their background knowledge, what they come to the table with at younger ages than before, uh, and build on that. And how do we make take the curriculum to another level or move the introduction of complex topics to uh, younger grades, the curriculum for earlier grades, because um, 
children have access to uh, not just the uh, the great books and the, the encyclopedia on the bookshelf in some homes, as used to be the case, but they have access to the World Wide Web and a, a huge amount of information, some of which is um, scary and a lot of which is uh, redundant and goes beyond what was in in my day uh, only available through instruction at school and through textbooks that were uh, loaned to us, issued to us, and then recollected and uh, reissued to the next year's uh, sophomores in high school. So, so there are there are factors that are affecting the curriculum, what is taught and how it is taught, uh, that are are being shaped or nudged by um, by the fact that um, at, again, at least in the developed world and in North America, um, there's a lot, an awful lot that's learned from the internet and. Um, so the uh, the students are at a different level than they were traditionally or they were in the 1950s when I was in uh, middle school and, and high school. Mm. Do you imagine that the future curriculum emphasis will be closer to teaching critical thinking than just the facts of things or the science of things, being able to interpret the information and to be able to analyze better what what is needed or what is true or where a source is reliable, that sort of skill. Is that a focus you see coming? I think that's that's been tried unsuccessfully because it's been done, uh, relatively speaking, in the abstract. And, and what where my hope lies is that um, more broadly education moves toward uh, problem-based and project-based learning. And, and so you're not just uh, sitting through a semester long class about the theory and the principles of fill in the blank, but you're trying to do something that um, in the first cycle, it's too hard for you to, to complete satisfactorily because, well, you don't know enough about it. And then, but you have the experience, you get your hands involved, you get your whole body involved, you get a team involved in trying to do something that's slightly beyond their grasp. And they get, get to feel the complexity that, that they didn't realize was embedded in this task. And then you, from an, a more experienced other, usually the teacher, um, you can say, okay, let's back off from this uh, first draft project and say, analyze what, where we fell short, where we ran into roadblocks that we didn't know how to solve. And other people have written about or demonstrated how to get how to manage these roadblocks, these potholes, or they have uh, intellectual tools, they have theoretical constructs that allow you to understand 
where you ran into a dead end and how you can uh, get back on track. So there's a, a kind of a post-action analysis process. And then we do the project a second time. But this time we're uh, better equipped, both by the experience of the first time through and by that addition of we have questions. In other words, the, the learners now have real questions because they want to know how, how not to repeat the uh, challenges of the first go round. And so those questions, it's sort of like uh, the office hours model. Suddenly, students have real questions about uh, why this worked or why it didn't work or why his worked and mine didn't. Um, and that's where the, uh, the expert or the more experienced other uh, can come ride to the rescue and say, well, think about it this way or be analytic about, well, what's, what did you see him do that, that you weren't able to do? Or what about the timing, the seat, the order of operations? Do you think that's important? Let's, let's imagine uh, how, how it would have come out if you had changed the order of operations. And then, and then we try it again. And so the, the knowledge, if you will, is embedded in the task instead of postponed until after the final exam and and we educators can say well we did our job we covered all the material but uh and then it's up to the the learner to go forth into the world and and try to apply that uh, knowledge or those those practice skills in an unrealistic environment and it doesn't work so why not make the learning environment as much as possible to be a version of the environment in which uh, you hope to perform well in the future, rather than postponing that and saying, well, we're going to fill your mind up with these ideas and these recommendations and these tips. And then at some future date in a completely different setting, you're going to be able to uh, retrieve those and apply them skillfully and and you'll you'll be fine and that's that's a, a recipe for disappointment that every first year teacher says holy smokes i wasn't really well prepared for this mm -hmm. uh, because i was i wasn't doing this i was i was taking notes in a notebook in a or a laptop in a college classroom and that, that's nothing like um a fifth grade classroom being in front of the students themselves yes john we've got some questions coming don't worry folks we're going right to them but we'll finish up with john here yeah real quickly i think one of the the things we'll we can expect to see with the future of curriculum is so far educational planning has always been about using a factory um approach to education, standardizing what you teach students when, measuring against objective standards of tests, um, trying to do everything so that you can keep people moving along a certain track so that they're effective factory workers or whatever when they come out the other side. <clears throat> Largely that's because we didn't have the technology or the support to be able to do something personalized. Um, the the uh, golden um, magical solution to education has always been a one-on-one -on -one tutor, but we don't have enough people to do that with every single student. 
with tools like AI, um, with tools like being able to track knowledge management a little bit more specifically, I suspect that over a long period of time, education will be less standardized and more personalized. So you might even have students of different ages going through the same classes because we'll have systems and tools that can support that and follow up and measure their actual progress over time. Um, that way you can have students who rush through school finish really quickly because they learn it and they're competent in it and they can move on with their lives. We're seeing that again in some forms of higher education like Western Governors University um, is the move to competency-based education or someone could select to have their kid learn on the farm and you could ask AI to convert all of your examples to farm work if you wanted to, if you wanted to live off the grid, like you could do those sorts of things. We just haven't had the tools previously to be able to. Thanks. That's terrific. We end our panel section um, inviting people who might have been stimulated by what we talked about to ask further questions about it. We've got some on deck here to look at. And while we're answering those questions, vote for the ones that are in the queue and let us know which ones you think are the most important. Let's go to our first one. John? Our first question is from Jason Robertshaw in Sarasota, Florida. I heard that Education Saturdays will be switching to Accessibility Saturdays this summer. What does that mean? Well, it comes from the recognition that a lot of instructors and teachers and that need summer for their own development and for preparation of the next year. So we recognize that we will probably not be able to access many of the experts that we want to have on and also that we'll have less participation so we figured we'll give you a summer break from the education focus and it's been suggested and we think it's a good idea to switch to accessibility and all of the issues that surround accessibility and that includes uh, enhancements for uh, learning as well as enhancements for living and enhancements for work. So all of these layers are going to be explored by some people that have come forward to take care of all this. And we hope you'll tune in continually on Saturday and learn something about accessibility. And that should raise, I would think, a lot of good questions about what's what are the implications, what are the difficulties, what barriers would we have to uh, leap over to get success in this area. But it's an emerging area that technology and the interactive online technology is really moving forward. So listen and come back on Saturdays to see what they talk about in Accessibility Saturday. It'll happen in a couple of weeks. They're preparing for it now. And uh, we'll see how it comes out. And then in the fall, you'll see us again on Education Hour when essentially school resumes. John, did you want to add anything? Um, no, but there will be more information coming out over the coming days in office hours. Great. All right. Next question. Our next question is from Paul Walhus in um, Austin, Texas. If you had a child in today's world, would you homeschool or would you send them off to the classroom? Let's start with Chris. Yes. That is uh, yes to both. I think there's a lot is learned at home whether you're in a literal homeschooling relationship with your student or with the local school or not. And a lot is learned at school, some of which is curricular, but some of which is social and um, interactional in various ways. So that um, I'd say because public education, at least in uh, in North America, for sure, is free and um, is an seems to be an important part of growing up. Um, 
for um, our children that um, I would, and I, I did send my own children and uh, most of my grandchildren to uh, local public schools. And as parents and grandparents, um, we did we did a lot of um, supplementary education, some of which was related to schooling and coaching and um, incentivizing homework and and uh, thinking aloud about uh, the ideas that were introduced at school and the personalities of teachers and the, the ways in which some of their uh, classroom rules and expectations were uh, felt wise and supportive and some of them felt punitive and crazy. Um, we as parents and grandparents and our, our children who became parents uh, became uh, another teacher, another teacher uh, both about uh, making the most of the situation you find yourself in at school and and also um, expanding where we had we the parents or the adults had expertise we could expand or even correct ideas that um, seemed like uh, misunderstood um, misrepresentations of how the, how the world works or how this uh, particular discipline works so so i think there's there's there has always been homeschooling that was the first version of education in the evolving um, human genome and and it still uh, happens whether or not it's the formal version of homeschooling or um, what I'm calling the, the supplementary uh, and complementary version that happens when kids go off to school for several hours a day and then uh, come home with with stories with tears or with silence and and part of our that's when our parental uh, opportunity to uh, to keep keep the learning going in in positive directions uh, steps up mm -hmm. John yeah the answer to this question is totally different on every single family uh, my sister homeschools her kids herself we send our kids to public school and there's different reasons for that. One for us is our kids have special needs and the teachers at the school are better equipped to teach our kids than we are. So we work with our teachers to help educate our kids as much as we can. If I didn't have special needs kids, um, I think I'd probably still would default to public school just because I think it's a good way to learn about society. If not, I would maybe do something like a co-op, but I don't, I don't feel like I could do a good job teaching my kids how to navigate the social world by myself because that's not in my skill set. Um, I'm more of a homebody. My reaction was that um, I was I was taught by my parents that you learn things in school, but they're reinforced at home. So you often have something stick when it's complemented by how it's used at home. So my dad was an accountant, so math was a big deal in our, our home. My mother was from England, so speaking properly reading and uh, being able to write clearly was focused on. And so I got that reinforcement when I was in public school. I would get lots of training in grammar and all the rest. And my mother would reinforce that at home by 
strictly requiring it. And my dad would require us to learn math and be very, hopefully very good at it. And science was a big deal in our home as well. And so my father fostered an interest in science. And this is where I got reinforcement from being at home, not so much homeschooling. And I think that went when I, I put my son in public school, that was the role I played. I tried to find out what he was learning and engage with the teacher about the curriculum and its focus and some of the specifics and approaches they were taking. And he had uh, already experienced uh, the project approach to things and was very enlivened by that. And I wanted to make sure that carried on at the schools he went to. And it did carry on. And then his interest was highly focused and very interesting for me to reinforce because it challenged me to learn a lot about some things I wasn't prepared to learn about. I didn't homeschool as such, but I tried to create an environment at home that reinforced that what was going on at school was important. And uh, as a pass along from my parents as well, be aware that asking questions is a good thing. So even questioning what you're learning is a way of integrating it, is to be able to say, why am I supposed to know this? Or how would I apply this? Or what is different about the way this is done than what we do at home? And that is part of what sort of keeps things going and feeds back to the school, taking questions back to the classroom that you thought of in discussion with family at home. Now, of course, I came from a family of seven, so there were a lot of us to handle, and a lot of homes don't have a number of children in them. So learning between the children was even a thing here where my sisters helped with my homework and I helped other people with their homework, and we reinforced each other that way. So I think it is a sense of what's going on in the classroom shouldn't happen in isolation. Families should be involved in both directions, to the school and from the school. Next question. Jason Robert Shaws from Sarasota, Florida, starts with a quote, education is a ziggurat, the base laid by parents, built upon by primary teachers, and then secondary teachers, and so on, end quote. Is that an accurate model? If the future of edu is more self-directed, diffuse, disintermediated. You want to take this one, Chris? I wanted to say to Jason that um, it's not so much of a model, that quote, but it's a metaphor. And it's one of many metaphors for schooling or for uh, the development uh, of the things that we learn, whether it's in school or in life. Uh, I prefer, I, I think it's a kind of a architectural hierarchical model that, that kind of fits the, the way that uh, curriculum designers and the the age graded school um, structure that we're, most of us are familiar with, um, that there's a, a kind of a tower or an edifice of knowledge and competence that um, each grade level or each year of life uh, builds a new layer, a new level and, and the ziggurat or the, remember the ziggurat was also the Tower of Babel. So things, things can get out of control uh, when you take that uh, model too literally. I prefer another metaphor, which is that uh, learning and education are like uh, the expanding um, rings or circles of uh, waves that get thrown up in a, in a pool of water if you toss a stone into the pool. 
and education or school formal schooling is is one form of stone or maybe each day or each year a stone is uh, tossed into the pool and it sends out its ripples and then there are many other influences many other stones that also uh, come into your pool and they and the ripples interact with one another they're not independent they're interactive and so the things i'm learning from the internet are different from could be contradictory to or supplementary to the things i'm learning in school or the things i'm struggling with in school and the the social my social life and my health and and the uh, physical environment in which i live are also um, sending out ripples that interact sometimes to reinforce what's what i'm learning in school and sometimes to interfere or contradict what i'm learning in school so it's extremely complex and uh, none of these influences on what we know what we learn and how we do or do not apply them in our lives is uh, fully independent of any of the others so as somebody was saying a minute ago uh, it's ex it's an extremely complex system with many interacting variables um and and the test makers and the curriculum sellers would like us to think that it's nice and crisp and isolated and hierarchical and each base layer uh, is built upon by next year's edition of the textbook or the curriculum and uh, it it makes rational sense but it does not map very well on the life experience of people growing up and broadening their horizons. John? I would agree completely. We've tried to build a ziggurat where everyone fits neatly into the mold, but it's not successful. Um, I think the future of education is, instead of trying to lay every single brick neatly in a row, we still need some infrastructure. We still need a foundation. You can't learn rocket science unless you learn math. So there still has to be some amount of scaffolding and some amount of building on prior knowledge. I think there will be more customization. So it won't be ziggurats, but each person will build their own house. But you'll still want standards like plumbing and electricity and windows because otherwise it's not a livable house. And so I think it's going to be a combination of the standardization we currently have with some customization in the future. Next question. Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas asks, are business schools and trade schools poised for future hypergrowth with emphasis on AI and robotics, leaving traditional education in the dust? Pick it up, John. I don't think they'll leave anyone in the dust. Um, I think that there will always be a value to um, liberal arts education because we'll still need people to be creative, we'll still need people to be able to think, and we'll need people to be able to use and manipulate the machines we're building. So I think there will always be a use case for a broad education. I tend to agree with that myself, but I also know that the trade schools that are operating in my jurisdiction are influenced by the industries that support them. So the trades for, say, bricklaying are using new methods that were developed by CAD drawing innovations. And they needed to be able to teach bricklayers how to lay bricks differently. 
in order to accommodate some of the designs that were coming out of these architectural uh, areas. So they're always trying to keep up with whatever the industry thinks is important. And if AI and robotics are the big thing in your area, then your trade school is going to ramp up innovation and, and uh, some understanding of that so they can pass on those skills because an industry in the region needs it. Uh, we in this city had training in uh, flight, uh, simulated flight. That is, there was a flight simulator in the trade school where people could begin to learn flying. And that was an innovation that was done in the 60s. And that particular course is gone now because the aircraft industry in our area has changed. But at that time, it was very useful to have a simulated, very large 707 cockpit for people to be able to learn things in. That was not something an ordinary public school could have or that anyone could have available at an industry for young people to come in and learn something about flying without paying big dollars for it. So it depends on what it is the focus is. And if on the question it's focusing on uh, augmented intelligence and robotics and other new industrial skills, yes, the trade schools are going to be a little ahead of the public schools. But those things, as John has pointed out, still need math, they still need reading, and they still need to be able to communicate with other people. So that's where those basics still remain in the public schools. Next question. Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California posits, technology speeds up, schools not designed to move that fast. Corporations take over education, schools disappear. The future? Is that the future, Chris? Well, Gordon, um, it could be a, a movie. Um, it seems to me that um, your your storyboard there is uh, it gets less predictable the farther out uh, we go. I don't think schools will disappear in my lifetime and possibly not in uh, my children's lifetime. Schools will change. And as I said, kind of in our introductory panel discussion, I think they'll change uh, more, much more slowly than we can envision or imagine. There, there are wonderful uh, examples in, uh, in television series like uh, Star Trek, where um, with great imagination, uh, technologies that don't exist today have made, in, in Star Trek, uh, have made possible uh, travel and adventures and uh, human and uh, multi-species interactions that um, are entertaining and interesting and do shed some light on, on human nature uh, here and now. But... Uh, I don't imagine that uh, that imagined future um, happening uh, quickly enough to uh, for us to witness it. That things are going to be a lot like they are today for most of education in the the hundred year future. Uh, but there there may well be. Uh, interesting, fascinating experiments, pilot studies, um, exotic, highly supported, uh, financially and technically supported um, 
experimental schools, you might call them, that will take advantage of technology uh, much more uh, radically and, and dramatically than, um, than typical public schools can uh, afford or are interested in doing. And, and some of those startups, so to speak, will, will thrive perhaps, and some of them, and most of them will, will fail, will be found to be uh, unsustainable in various ways, but we'll learn a lot from those um, experiments. But I don't think uh, the future that you sketch is uh, inevitable or or soon. It's going to be gradual and, and more evolutionary than revolutionary. That's true, I think. Uh, they, they don't move fast. They carry on. They've got a lot of sunk investment in the way they do things now. If there needs to be specialized skills training, corporations are already absorbing that demand. They know that the schools can provide the basics. They know the schools can provide a fairly high level of understanding. But when it comes to skills training and what corporations need and what shareholders will tolerate in terms of investment, uh, they're not going to take over general education at any time soon, in my mind. I don't think schools will disappear. I think they might transform into community hubs of learning so that all ages are learning there, all ages have access to information or technologies they can't afford in their home. They can also borrow spaces or a maker space where they can have stuff built for their own home use. And uh, there'll be uh, 3D printers there, which they can get, you know, experiment with and get things built that are specific to their particular problem solving in a plumbing problem, for instance. And then the school itself will just be a regular visit to these kind of community areas. So that's a thing that's been experimented in, as, as uh, Dr. Clark says, the school experiments are going on constantly all through. And I'm a, I'm a student who went through a few of those experiments, and they, they're not running it now, so it didn't work. But we learned a lot from those experiments. Uh, John? Yeah, part of the reason why we have schools the way we do now is a result of the Industrial Revolution, which with the introduction of the steam engine increased worker productivity a huge amount. People started moving into the cities. Kids didn't have stuff to do during the days. We didn't want them in the factories working necessarily, and so we invented schools. Um, if AI becomes like the steam engine in how it Im impacts worker productivity, there's a, a scenario where there's workers don't keep up, they don't get cross-skilled, they get replaced, and then we have no longer a teacher shortage because maybe everyone just goes into education um, as part of their uh, professional development. I don't know. Uh, but, but it could be that a huge increase to productivity really changes how our society operates, including the school system itself. Next question. Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas asks, what is the ideal homeschooling environment? Is it at all like the 10K studio? Paul's referring to uh, the program earlier on Office Hours regarding 10K studios and, and what you can build to uh, do things and learn with. Well, Chris, what do you think? Again, similar to the uh, answer to the an earlier question about uh, is a $10,000 studio in one's home uh, affordable and appropriate for uh, teachers? And it's it's too expensive, but in this case, uh, Paul is asking about more about um, 
reception of information and and access to uh, information and knowledge, as well as communicating uh, interactively with with peers and team members, perhaps, and and with more experienced others. And I think uh, that would be a wonderful supplement. And it already exists in basically in a in a laptop and in in a fast enough internet connection to uh, be one of the the key channels, if you will, for uh, homeschooling. It's supplementing mom or dad at the at the dining room table or the kitchen table uh, by saying, "Well, we have we have the world at our fingertips. Let's see what we can find out about uh, the answers to the questions you have um, by." By searching on YouTube, for example, or by searching uh, more generally the web, and what what answers do they have for us? We have access to uh, a lot of wisdom and experience through the internet. So, what what you really need for um, homeschooling content is, is not um, paper books and handouts, but you need a, a good fast. A reliable internet, connect, affordable and reliable internet connection, and uh, and the uh, hardware and software at your end, whether it's at your your dining room table or your your workshop, to uh, interact with that information and to uh, share it with your your peers or teammates. If it's a home, see homeschooling went from being um, a model for the isolated family, isolated by choice, to being um, a network of people, usually in a in a common geographic area, who were also homeschooling. So they got their homeschooled kids together to to begin to meet some of the the social needs that um, that schooling or at least that. Uh, various uh, young ages and developmental stages of of childhood uh, do need. Mm -hmm. And so homeschooling is a different thing than it was 30 years ago. um, Because these uh, sort of informal groups, pods, they got to be called in uh, during the uh, shutdown uh, due to COVID-19. Uh, small groups of uh, learners and some of their parents would get together uh, either virtually or in person and um, do interactive learning, sort of reinventing the one-room school with with perhaps more than one adult involved or hosting. So that, uh, and certainly the the uh, hardware and software that we have access to today, the Zoom technology and the good advice we have uh, through office hours about good audio and lighting and so forth and so on, do's and don'ts, uh, have made it um, a more quali- a higher quality experience when you're reaching out to, to connect with others in support of your learning. I'm very intrigued by... Um a trend that's happening in real estate in my area with uh, infill housing and uh, new homes are offering Zoom rooms. 
Uh, they're actually creating more quiet rooms, isolated from the rest of the family, uh, allowing either home office kind of Zoom rooms or probably homeschooling Zoom rooms. So that's a trend that might start happening more in more cities, and it would allow people to make that choice of augmenting the school with what they get at home. Next question. Next question is from Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. Does AI support project-based learning? If so, what does that look like? I'm going to speculate that we don't know yet what uh, augmented intelligence is going to do for project-based learning. Project-based learning is usually ground up. It's what the students bring to the project and what they already know and what they agree on exploring. And then the job of the educators is to guide that exploration. So I'm not entirely sure how AI plays into that, except perhaps to be able to help with answering spontaneous questions. John? One specific use case I would see is if the student has a question and you want to have access to an expert, the AI can become the expert you ask. Um, it'd be tough to make sure that it's to validate what it's telling the student, especially if the teacher themselves are, don't know enough about the topic to uh, verify that. All right. Next question. Next question is from Douglas Carmichael. Do you think that Apple-style curriculum or equipment grants to homeschooling families would be a viable program in the United States? I can't speak for the United States because I live in Canada, but I can say that I don't think uh, Apple-style curriculum equipment uh, grants are going to be the same as what Apple did in the past, which is to provide the hardware and some of the software, put it in the classroom, and let the teachers and the curriculum developers find a way to integrate that. Got an idea, John? Yeah, I'm... I don't think Apple will just give people computers um, when they could have people buy them. But I wouldn't be surprised if different jurisdictions in particular move to more of a voucher-type program, which would enable those families who choose to educate using technology to purchase some of that type of equipment. Mm. Next question. Our next question is from Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas. Will the advent of AI drastically increase the misinformation in educational materials? Are you concerned that it will become hard to know what's factual anymore? Is it too late? Uh, this is a thing I encountered with some um, late elementary uh, grade schoolers, uh, grade six boys, where they were talking in the backseat of my car as I was driving them home from a party, uh, that they would like a, a wrist-based watch that would have the entire knowledge of the world on their wrist, and then they wouldn't have to go to school. And for me, I let it settle for a minute when they all agreed to each other. That'd be a great idea. Yeah, I think that'd be good. And then I asked them, how do you know what's on the watch is accurate or correct? And they kind of went, oh, yeah, right. you got to know whether or not it's true. And I think our focus is now becoming that, that both in the popular media, the political venues, the corporate promotional venues, and now with augmented intelligence, we're getting all kinds of signals that the potential for misinformation is very large. I think the reaction to that, which is normal in a society, is to educate ourselves about what we don't know about this. And that's true for any technology, any new technology that appears. Our job is to try and learn how it works, what it can do, and what it can do for us. So I think that continues, not just in the educational field, but in society at large. I'm not concerned. Uh, because I, I have the mandate of, in my own mind, 
anything I can't understand is something I should investigate. So if I can easily understand how something operates, like a, a heating system or a plumbing system, that's great. I can access that. But if there's something coming along and somebody's telling me that this blockchain thing is going to change everything and I don't understand how blockchain works, it's on me to go out and find out just how all that works. Next question. Our next question comes from Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. With all of these innovations and in technology, what would be a good personal development avenue for some educators to embrace during the summer? Go ahead, Dr. Clark. Tony, I think that um, each, every educator could add 10% to what they're capable of doing with, uh, with technology and distance education approaches, even, even though it's, uh, they believe that it's unlikely that there will be another uh, demand for a quick pivot to 100% uh, online uh, teaching and learning that we don't want, I don't think it's realistic to ask uh, educators during the summer to change everything, uh, to, to make a, a thousand percent uh, change in what they can do and the hardware and software and uh, techniques for distance education that, um, that they possess to go from zero to a hundred in in a month in the summer but if you can go from 28 to 48 um that would that would be that would serve you well both um in ways that you can predict and the ways that you cannot predict mm -hmm. so it's a it's a good time i think to to gradually build uh, your competence to broaden your competence to upgrade uh one part of your technology, perhaps the audio, perhaps the, uh, the video, perhaps your, uh, the frequency with which you uh, invite family members from near and far to a weekly or bi-weekly family meeting on Zoom. And so the, the more uh, regularly you use these technologies, the more comfortable you become with them and uh and therefore you you will feel more you will be more confident if and when the opportunity arises or the mandate uh, is reissued that hey you've got to you've got to do this professionally and you've got to do it tomorrow so uh that would be my advice to uh to play with the technology in a way that that can gradually increase your uh, competence and familiarity with the technology, even though you, you're not um, working on a deadline to get to be a 100% super presenter uh, by September 5th. John? I have two suggestions. The first one is treat yourself. Find a book that you want to read for yourself. It doesn't have to be education related or technology related or nonfiction. Just do something that you will enjoy, especially reading a book to help you maintain your focus and recover from the tough school year. Secondly, I'd really encourage you to join us next week in office hours. We're going to be 
designing a lesson plan. So we're going to try. We're going to try to in the first twenty minutes or so of the hour to to write an entire six week curriculum for whatever age students you have using AI tools. And I think learning how to use some of these tools will help empower you to spend less time designing good curriculum so you can spend more time focusing on your students. So I think that would be the main area I would focus on in the time I wanted to devote towards self-development over the summer. And sometimes summer is good to just take a break too. Next question. Our next question is from Paul Walhus, Austin, Texas. What's the current state of special education transportation where you are and in general? In Austin, we have Cap Metro. And what about pedestrian mobility? I can't speak for anything in the U.S., but up here in Canada, most of the schools have access to buses that are dedicated to disabled or uh, people who need assistance and for special education. Uh, transportation is a big deal when you have a physical disability, so having specially built buses and uh, access points for picking up kids on those buses is a big deal. Uh, my son went to school, he's not disabled or anything, but uh, he's he went to school on city public buses because they went to the schools, they accessed the areas the schools were in and were able to transport students. In the areas where they don't have access to the public, there's a lot of the yellow buses uh, travel around at particular times of day. So uh, up here, we don't have much of an issue, but maybe in other jurisdictions, there is an issue. Next question. Our next question is from Tony Mobley again. Are we on dangerous ground moving towards technology and moving from the humanity-oriented instruction, or should we push for balance? I tend to think there'll always be balance. It may come a little later, and we may want it sooner, but I think it will eventually balance itself out. A little quickly for Chris and John. Tony, I don't think we're um, in danger of neglecting the human side of education. In fact, um, the introduction of new and demanding and complex technologies also increases the, uh, the need and the opportunity for um, support, supportive and accepting and, and uh, sort of mentoring relationships in teaching and learning. So I think they're, they're all of a piece. Um, the, more, the more that's new and demanding, the more that um, we also need to uh, reflect on basic principles of uh, let's let's get through this together. John, yeah, I think we're always at the danger of succumbing to the tyranny of la technique, as expressed by Jacques Ellul in um, his book *The Technological Society*, which is I would encourage for someone interested in French philosophy and technology. It's a great book. Next question. Next question is from Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas. Who are the top five thinkers globally in the future of education? Name at least five. Well, I think there's three of us right here. But no, I, I think this is a question we'll need some time to look up and maybe make our own choices. If you want to bring that question back next week, maybe we'll have time to think about who the top five are in our own mind. John? Off the top of my head, Dr. Philippa Hardman does doing some great research. Khan Academy is providing some great materials. Um, can't think of others off the top of my head. So I got two. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Last question for the day. Last question is from Paul Walhus. Sports and education go hand in hand. What can you say about the future of sports in education? Yeah, I have a little trouble with this idea that sports and education go hand in hand. So I'll let you say that. But I, I think sports education, in my experience, can only go with my experience, 
is I learned the rules of every game. I didn't really learn to be very good at a lot of these things because the time period in the school is not enough for the 10,000 hours I need to be kicking a soccer ball properly past a goalie. But I learned all the rules of the game, and I learned I'm no good at basketball and that sort of thing. I'm a tall guy, and they thought I'd be a great basketball player, but I didn't really understand the sport. So, Chris, you want to take it? I think sport is one great example of um, what's called the extracurriculum, extracurricular activities. And I think they're extremely important, um, pretty much as um, projects in the project-based uh, framing of learning in school. That is, um, I was a band and theater guy in high school and college. and and a lot of what I learned in classrooms got expressed for better and for worse in my band and, and theater and sort of newsletter editor career. So the extracurricular activities are sometimes thought to be uh, extra, so to speak. But I think they're really the most memorable part of schooling for many of us and the place where we kind of consolidate and make sense of the abstractions that we're exposed to in, in the formal classwork um, in, in an applied, grounded, practical, unforgettable, team-oriented setting. So it's a lot like life. That's it for that. Thank you, everyone who contributed their ideas today. Your questions guide the discussion and provoke us to think about them. Your voting also tells us what's more important to you and lets us focus on those items first. We also want to acknowledge all the people who lend us their time every day to operate office hours and after hours. John and I are always grateful for our panelists who contribute to the day's discussion each week. And be sure to check out After Hours, which runs all day and all night, where you might get a quick answer to nearly any technical question you might be struggling with. It's where the global in our community can be found. Thank you for being here. We'll see you again next Saturday when we tackle AI to the ground and make it create a curriculum. Thanks, guys. Good to see you, Dr. Clark. Have a great week. John Snyder, do we have a, uh, a debrief scheduled or not?